Psalm 73. We'll read the whole of the psalm uh, together. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with volleys. They scoff and speak with malice and loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Well, the theme of our lecture tonight is, as Christians, how do we remain faithful when the ungodly appear to triumph? We're delighted to have with us the Reverend William MacLeod. I would like this evening to draw your attention to Psalm 73 and uh, to look at the message of this psalm because I think it's a very relevant psalm for us in our day and generation and particularly thinking of 
the various conflicts that we have to face and the disappointments and discouragements that come our way as we try to battle for what is true and what is right and what is good. And uh, then we meet with disappointments, discouragements. Things don't go the way we hoped. And uh, that can be very difficult for us to take. But uh, we must encourage ourselves in the Lord. In Psalm 11, verse 3, the psalmist asks the question, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's a good question, isn't it? If the foundations be destroyed, what can we do? It's a hard day in which we live as Christians, and we are seeing the foundations being undermined. It was interesting that this very morning, uh, Andrew Marr was speaking on Radio 4, and he described Britain as the most secular nation in the world. Quite a thought, isn't it? When you think of our heritage, our Reformation heritage, when you think of uh, the Reformers, the Puritans, the Covenanters, the revivals of the 18th century and of the 19th century, great men of God of the past and the great understanding of the truth and the gospel missionaries that went out from this country to every country of the world. And now a commentator describing us as the most secular nation in the world. Was there ever a harder time to be a Christian and to be involved in Christian work, to be a faithful Christian. In times of revival, it's easy when people have a sense of God, an awareness of the Almighty, a fear of God, and when there's a hunger for God and for the truth, and when there's a spirit of repentance, conviction of sin, It's easy to minister in times like that. There's a sense even in which it's easy to minister in times of persecution. Nobody wants persecution. We don't enjoy being hurt or tortured or tormented for our faith. But in times of persecution, at least there's a clear distinction between truth and error, between what's right and wrong between those who worship Caesar, Caesar is Lord, and those who say Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a clear distinction between Christianity and Islam, or whatever it is. But in our day, there's so much confusion. It seems so difficult because there's such a spectrum of opinion, even within the Christian church. In the professing Christian church in Britain today, you get everything from atheism to reformed religion. All kinds of views and ideas and liberal theologies and liberal morals. Anything seems to go. 
At one time, people would say, well, the Ten Commandments, they're there. That's something that we must obey. They're fundamental. We must keep the Ten Commandments. God gave them to us. God spoke them from Mount Sinai with his voice. God wrote them upon tables of stone so that they would remain with his people. They're there in the scriptures for us. And Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. But then things seem to have changed and people make up their own morals today and decide what they wish to do and how they wish to behave themselves. Marriage used to be a great pillar of society. When I was growing up as a youngster, um, marriage was something, well, it was there. Everybody believed it was right. If there were people who lived together and they weren't married, it was frowned on by the whole community. And the idea of homosexual marriage. Who ever heard of anything like that? That was so contrary, really, to our Christian tradition. It wasn't even imagined by people. But today we see these pillars being removed. We see our society changing and accepting all sorts of things that are in clear contradiction to the teaching of Scripture. The world attacks the church. The devil attacks the church. But one of the hardest things is that the church attacks the church. The false church attacking the true church. False theologians attacking the word of God, undermining the stand of the church. And so in this situation in which we find ourselves with so much confusion, the question is asked, where is God? Where is God in all this? What's God doing? Why is God hiding, as it were? Why does it seem that God is asleep? Where is God? Well, God's where he always was. God's in heaven. God's on the throne. God's timing is different to our timing. God's ways are higher than our ways. We find it difficult at times to understand God's ways. But one thing we can be sure of is that at the end of the day, God will have the victory. And God's kingdom will flourish. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God reigneth, let the earth be glad. In all our depressions, in all our discouragements, in all our disappointments, look up. Remember, there is a throne above every throne. There is a king above every king. God is in control. And God is working out his purposes in the world. And God will be glorified. The psalmist here says in verse 22, Psalm 73, verse 22. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. 
That's quite dramatic, isn't it? I was so foolish, so ignorant. I was like a beast. And yet so true, isn't it? And so true of you and me at times. Foolish and ignorant. And like an animal that doesn't understand, that doesn't have a spiritual sense, that doesn't seem able to see things from God's perspective. The psalmist saw the wicked prospering and he envied them. He felt momentarily that there was no profit in being righteous. Why fight for the cause of God? Why fight for Christian morality? Why fight for the Bible and truth? What's the point? Whatever we do, we fail. The wicked seem to get on so well. Those who, are, who have evil designs, those who are trying to destroy our Christian heritage, they seem to be so successful. Well, just give up. I was foolish and ignorant and in thy sight as a beast. We have to, as the psalmist here says, we have to, to look at things from God's perspective. We have to try and look at things in the sense of eternity, not what might be happening at the moment, but look back from heaven, from hell at this world. And so you see his conclusion at the end of the psalm, verse 28, it is good for me that I draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Verse 27, those who are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed them that go a-whoring from thee. So the wicked will perish. They will be destroyed. All those who seem to triumph at this point in time, they shall perish. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, and I will declare his works abroad. Be strong and be of a good courage. So let's work our way through this psalm together and see if we can get the encouragement that is here for us tonight. The first section of the psalm um, deals with the wicked seemingly prospering. Well, verses 1 and 2 are, in a sense, the conclusion that the psalmist has come to. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. To Israel, to the church, to the people of God. Who are the Israel? Who are the people of God? Those who have a clean heart. Do you have a clean heart? Do I have a clean heart? Does anyone have a clean heart? Surely all of us, our hearts are unclean. And yet we do have a clean heart, washed in the blood of Christ, being justified by faith. Justification, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight for the sake of Christ. Yes, our hearts are clean, washed in the blood. Our hearts are clean because God has taken away the heart of stone and given us a new heart, 
regenerated. The washing of regeneration, purified in the blood. Truly, God is good to his people, to those who have a clean heart, to those who are born again, to those in whom his spirit is working, those who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. He'd almost slipped. Just uh, some months ago in our Stornoway congregation, there was a man trying to rescue a sheep that had climbed down onto some cliffs. And as he was trying to get this sheep, sadly, he slipped, fell over the rocks and was crushed to death down below. It was very tragic. But it's a warning, isn't it? The slippery place. The psalmist said, my feet had almost gone, but they didn't. And that's a wonderful thing about it, isn't it? God keeps us, and he keeps our feet by his grace, kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time, kept by God. So the psalmist says then, as it were, summing up what he's going to be talking about, God is good to Israel, to those who are of a clean heart, my feet almost slipped, but they didn't. Thankfully, by the grace of God, they didn't. And then, from verses 3 on, he talks about his experience. I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The foolish, who are the foolish? The fool hath said in his heart that there is no God. There's no fool like the atheist. How can anybody be an atheist? It's so obvious that there's a God. Everywhere you look, God's fingerprints are to be seen. The world around us declares to us that there is a God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And then there's another fool, the practical atheist. So many people, they believe, they say they believe in God, but they live as if there were no God. So in their lives, while on the one hand saying, oh yes, there's a God, there's a supreme being, at the same time they live in denial of God. And the psalmist was looking at these fools, these atheists, these practical atheists, and he saw them prospering. I was envious. Why? Why do we see the, the wicked prospering in politics? They get voted in as members of parliament. They get into government. They get into the cabinet, to the highest offices. Why is it that the wicked seem to prosper? These people who have no morality, these people who live lives in denial of God, who maybe say on the one hand that they believe in God and yet by their lives they show that they don't fear God. They don't respect him. They prosper in politics, they prosper in the media, radio and television. You see them there, you see them in the newspapers. They prosper in business, the wicked. They get on, they get rich. They become managing directors, they become so wealthy. You see them prospering in the professions. 
prospering in the courts, getting court cases in their favor. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do foolish, these foolish people who deny God, why do they get on so well? It can be a problem for us. Why have we lost this vote in Parliament or in the House of Lords? Why is it that it seems whatever we do, we can't manage to get there? We can't show people the folly of destroying marriage. It's so obvious to us, and yet it seems impossible for us to convey this message. The foolish prosper. And then, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4, there are no bands in their death, and their strength is firm. The wicked, they have no bands in their death. They don't seem to have the troubles that other people have. They live their lives and then they die and they pass away and everything seems fine. Their strength is firm. They're not bothered with illnesses and troubles and sicknesses. Verse 5, They are not in trouble as other men are. Neither are they plagued like other men, the wicked, They seem to get on so well. And you and I, maybe, we feel there's this illness, this trouble, this worry, this care, this burden. These things go against us. Why are so many things going against us? And yet, you look at evil men and they seem to be prospering. Therefore, verse 6, pride compasseth them about as a chain, like a mare with a chain round his neck. Pride, arrogance. And violence along with the arrogance. Well, we see plenty of violence in our world too. Violence sometimes directed against Christians. It's interesting that in a recent article in the um, Spectator, it was said that there's more persecution today than there ever was. It's reckoned that 100,000 professing Christians die each year due to persecution. 100,000 in our world today dying of persecution. That's a secular article that was speaking about it. Violence. Violence against the unborn child. Pride compasseth them about as a chain. Pride and violence going together. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They are so prosperous. These arrogant eyes. They have more than their heart could wish. Whatever they want, they seem to have. Do you sometimes envy the wicked? And sometimes think, why? Why are they getting on so well? Why are these wicked men prospering? Why is God not breaking out in judgment upon them? They are corrupt, verse 8, and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Speaking, cursing, lying, evil speech. Who believes a politician today? If they get off with it, they will lie and lie and lie. They are corrupt. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily, proudly. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Blasphemously, 
despising the evangelical church, the true Christian church, mocking it, ridiculing it, regarding us as kind of prehistoric people in our views just because we love God and love his truth and love his Bible. They mock us, they ridicule us, they despise us. So often they won't even give us a hearing. And they try to pretend that the debate has moved on from us and that we don't really have any voice at all. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore as people return hither, God's people tempted to, to return to the ways of wickedness. The waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. The wicked, their cup is overflowing. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? God doesn't know. God's not aware. Or God can't know. Or there is no God. That's the sort of things they say. There is none to whom we are responsible. There is no real God. We're not answerable to anyone at the end of the day. How doth God know? We can do what we like. We do what we enjoy. We do what we feel like doing. Verse 12, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches always prospering, always seeming to be victorious and triumphant. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain. Why have I repented? Why have I been troubled about my heart? Why have I sought to overcome the sin within me and washed my hands in innocency? Why am I bothered and grieving and mourning over sin? These sinners, they, they do what they like, and God seems to be prospering them. For all day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. Discouragements and disappointments and troubles coming my way. Think maybe of your neighbors, some whom you know, living near you, how they prosper in their wickedness. Think of people, maybe work colleagues, and how they seem to be getting on and they blaspheme and they despise God and his Bible and his gospel. Think of the celebrities who despise the morality of Scripture. They trample upon every commandment and yet they're so popular, they're so rich, they're so successful. Think of the church leaders, the church leaders who have moved away from the teaching of Scripture and who accept any kind of relationship as acceptable with God, and God's commandments are trampled underfoot. Think of the politicians who say, I'm for marriage. I believe in conservative values. And it's all lies. I'm for marriage. I believe in conservative values. No, it's liberal values. Values that were never around in the past. And it's the destruction of marriage so that marriage itself becomes meaningless. But why does God allow it? 
Why is our country being taken over by such people? Why do the wicked prosper? Why are they victorious? And God's people become so discouraged. I'm sure you sometimes feel just like the psalmist felt here. The prosperity of the wicked caused great questions. But then, secondly, new light comes. Verse 15, If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of my children. The psalmist is thinking these things inside himself, but he won't speak them because he knows how it would hurt God's people. But they're in his heart. If I would speak out, I would cause people perhaps to stumble and to fall. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. New light came when he went into God's sanctuary. When he went to the tabernacle, to the house of God when he went to church, and when he started to think about heaven and hell, the judgment day, the end of the world, the wicked get on so well, but what's going to happen to the wicked? They shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. The wages of sin is death. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We shall be judged, every one, according to our works. There's a hell as well as a heaven. Thou hast set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. When he went into the church, then he understood. You see, we're looking at things at the moment. And we're seeing how things are just now. But we'll have a different perspective when it comes to the end of our lives. We'll have a very different perspective when we're standing before the judgment seat. Many people will look back on their lives with regret, with sorrow, and with sadness. even those who should have known better. The psalmist, he goes into the sanctuary, he understood their end. Surely thou didst set them upon slippery places. Last year, I went out to China and I was giving some Christian lectures out there and there was a young woman who was translating my lectures into into Mandarin. Since then I heard that her husband had been fishing, fishing at a kind of pit. He wasn't a Christian, sadly, but he slipped and fell in. The pit had steep edges. He couldn't climb out. It was two hours before he was taken out, and he was pronounced dead there. That was set them upon slippery places. Well, the wicked they certainly are upon slippery places. 
They might be looking so prosperous, so wealthy, so successful, so powerful. They are so victorious. They're carrying everything before them. But look at what they're standing on. The corner of a pit. At any moment, it's going to give way. They're going to slide into a pit. And a pit out of which they'll never come. A bottomless pit. A pit of weeping and of wailing and of gnashing of teeth. A lake of fire. In a moment, suddenly, thou castest them down into destruction. Friends, how important it is for us to face up to these things. Every one of us here, who would want to end up in the pit? Make sure you're a Christian. Don't just take it for granted. Peter says, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Too many people think, I'm all right. I go to church. I live a good life. But do you really have a living relationship with Christ? Are you walking with him? Or are you just pretending to yourself? Surely thou didst set them upon slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. Verse 19, how are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. What an awful situation to be in. Consumed with terrors. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. Who would be an enemy of God's people? Who would stand for wickedness against righteousness? Who would fight against God's law and God's gospel? Who dare? They are brought into desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. What misery is a lost eternity. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. In Isaiah chapter 29, we have a very interesting picture set before us. A hungry man, and he falls asleep, and he dreams that he's eating a feast. And it's a wonderful dream. And he's enjoying his dream so much. And then he wakens up and he's hungry, hungrier than ever. How many people's life is a dream? They think, it's wonderful. I'm having a great life. I'm enjoying myself. I can do what I like. They forget God and they forget God's law. And one day they waken up and they're standing before God's judgment seat. And it's too late. Too late. As a dream when one awaketh, so, Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Sometimes we feel as if God is asleep and God awakens. And God is awake. 
and he that keeps Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. Awake, awake, put on my strength, O arm of the Lord. God will awake. And when God does awake, who dare be fighting against him? Our life is passing very quickly. The years go by. Some of us maybe will live till 70, 80 years, maybe 90 or 100. But what is that? It passes so quickly. And then your life has come to an end. You die. You look back. And how will you look back on your life? Will you look back on wasted years? Opportunities that you had for serving the Lord. Times when you should have witnessed for him. Fights that you should have been involved in. But you couldn't be bothered. Will you have regrets? Think of the parable of the rich farmer that Jesus tells us. The man who, who's fields brought forth a great harvest and he said what shall i do i know what i'll do i'll pull down my barns and build greater and then i'll say to my soul soul there was much goods laid up for many years eat drink and be merry have a good time have a wonderful retirement and god said to him thou fool this night thy soul shall be required of thee then whose shall these things be? Setting his heart upon earthly things. Or the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, clothed in purple, fared sumptuously every day, lived in a palace. And then Lazarus the beggar, at his door, eating the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And Lazarus, his name means whose help is in God. Lazarus died. And the angels came and carried him to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man died and was buried. He had a wonderful funeral. Lots of people there, great, great uh, testimonies given, great obituaries to this man. The rich man died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. How quickly the life of the wicked comes to an end, and all their prosperity disappears. And instead, what have they got? An eternity of misery. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt awakest, thou shalt despise their image. New light when we go into God's house. Let's view this life from eternity, not from time. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 speaks of men who build, who build with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, 
hay and stubble. And those who build of wood, hay and stubble, their work will be burned up. And they themselves saved, yet as by fire. So friends, you can be a Christian. And you can get to heaven, as it were, by the skin of your teeth. Saved us by fire. And all your life work burnt up. What was it? Wood, hay, and stubble. Is that what you want your life's work to be? Surely not. That's why it's so important for us to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. To keep in mind always that we're on a journey. This is not our home. This is not our destiny. We are here but for a little time. This is the preparation for the future. Get ready for eternity. Prepare for it. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Prepare for heaven. That's why we've got our life here. That's why we have this day of grace. Prepare for heaven. Be ready for it. Be always working for the Lord and seeking to serve him. And so the psalmist says, verse 21, Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. My conscience was troubled. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. What profit is there though we gain the whole world and lose our own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? You could be so popular in this world, so gifted and so successful and everybody thinking the world of you and then end up in hell. What good would that be? So foolish was I, looking at the wicked and envying them. What is there to envy? Looking at the ungodly and thinking, oh, they're getting on so well. I wish I had what they have. What do they have? Even although they would have the whole world, even although they'd have such riches and wealth, one day you die. Naked came you into this world, and naked shall you leave it. Yes, we'll all leave this world naked unless we have Christ. That's the only thing we can take with us, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, going to be with him forever. So foolish was I and ignorant. Why should I envy the wicked? Their success is so short-lived. Better to be on God's side than on the devil's side. Better to lose battles and to win the war. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God's on our side, don't be afraid. So then, let's not be foolish, ignorant, or like beasts, beasts that eat and drink and sleep 
and work or whatever. Don't be like beasts. Be rather like angels. Be spiritual beings. Be heavenly minded. Be serving the Lord. And so, fourthly, we have the the real situation set out here. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. God holding us by the right hand. As Christians, God looks after us. God keeps us. God watches over us. We would have fallen too. We'd often have fallen, but for the fact that we were kept. God's hand holding us. I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by thy right hand, kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. God keeps us. We couldn't keep ourselves. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. God guides us with his counsel. Where do we find his counsel? In the Bible. We don't need dreams and visions and such things. We have everything that we need to know in the word of God and the scriptures cannot be broken. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Everything we need to know is in the scriptures. Thou wilt guide me by thy counsel. Each day are we being guided by God's word, not by the fashion of the day, not by the popular philosophies around us, not by what's the done thing, not by what is popular, but what says the Lord? What does God's word say? What's the truth? Thou wilt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me into glory. One day God's people will be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment. One day, friend, you who've been struggling to serve the Lord in this world and facing different disappointments and discouragements and times when you've found it really hard, one day God himself will say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your Lord. Won't it be wonderful to hear God saying that to us? Won't it be worthwhile, whatever sufferings and difficulties and disappointments we have here, press on toward the mark, keep going, stand fast, don't give up. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your Lord. Enter into your reward. And so finally, our confession, verses 25 onwards. I love that verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. Whom have I in heaven? Whom have I on the earth beside thee? You are my choice. You are my delight. You are the one who is everything to me. Without you, I couldn't live. My life would be meaningless. Whom have I in the heavens high but thee, O Lord, alone? And on the earth whom I desire besides thee, there is none. 
We love the Lord, don't we? We love him with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. He is our chosen. This is our confession. Whatever happens to the wicked, whatever God allows them to prosper in for a time, and it'll only be for a little time, what matters to me is not the prosperity or the worldly success of the wicked, but what matters is God. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth. So often we fail, we feel weak, we feel fragile, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. In myself I can do nothing. I cannot fight. I cannot overcome. But God is my refuge and my strength. God is my armor. God enables me through God. What can I not do? Through my God assisting me, I overleap a wall, said the psalmist. And every wall we shall overleap through our God assisting us. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart. And what almighty strength that is. And God is my portion forever. He is my chosen. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. Those who go after their sins, those who go after their immorality, those who go after their liberal theology and their liberal ethics, those who are destroying the Christian foundations of our country, they shall perish. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare thy works. It's good for us to draw near to God. Good for us to come to God. Good to open our hearts to him. Good to pray to him. Good to tell him everything. I will draw near to God and I will be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Better to be a beggar with God. To be on God's side. Even if we're a beggar. Better to be a failure in the world's eyes. To be laughed at and ridiculed and made a fool of. But what does God think of us? That's what matters. Even although everybody in the world thinks we're a fool, if God thinks we're wise, if we're on God's side, that's what matters. Who is on the Lord's side? That's a great question. Job had a really hard time. He was tried so hard. He lost all his wealth. He lost all his family. Even his wife turned against him and told him to commit suicide. His friends that he thought would comfort him started condemning him. You remember what he said? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Though he slay me, though God slay me, yet will I trust in him. Do we have that, that kind of faith? Though he slay me, though everything go wrong, though I meet disappointment after disappointment, discouragement after discouragement, though in every battle which I seek to fight for him, I fail, though he slay me, 
yet will I trust in him. Yes, I will trust in him. It is good for me to draw near to God. The wicked shall perish. It is good for me to draw near to God. Remember how God told Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh. And Moses went and said to Pharaoh, God says, the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Let my people go, says the Lord. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Now you would think, well, why does God not strike Pharaoh dead at that point? But God has his own purposes. He knows what he's doing. And he is going to be glorified in Pharaoh. And so God brings his ten plagues upon Pharaoh and the land of Egypt. And eventually Pharaoh's own firstborn child dies. And Pharaoh says to Moses, Away! Go away! Take your people out of my land and pray for me that the Lord will have mercy on me. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? But God's still not finished with Pharaoh. Israel leave the land of Egypt and they come to Pihahiroth at the Red Sea. There are mountains on either side, the Red Sea in front of them. And the Egyptians and Pharaoh harden their hearts and they come with their chariots and their armies chasing after the Israelites. And the Israelites say, what's going to happen to us now? They're so weak in their faith and they think we're finished, we're lost. Were there not enough graves in the land of Egypt so that we would be buried there instead of perishing here in the desert? And God says to Moses, tell the children of Israel that they go forward. And God blows the Red Sea with his breath. It opens out before them. And the Israelites go through the sea. And he is a pillar of light all night to the Israelites and a pillar of cloud and darkness to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians follow them into the Red Sea. And the Israelites cross the Red Sea. And God brings the waters upon the Egyptians. And the next morning the Israelites see their bodies strewed upon the shore. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Says Pharaoh, says Egypt. And Israel sang the song of Moses. The horse and his rider cast into the sea. God has triumphed gloriously. And then we have that wonderful picture in the book of Revelation of God's people upon the sea of glass singing the song of Moses, son of the Lamb. Victory, conquest, Success, the song of Moses, triumphing over Pharaoh, triumphing over the powers of darkness. The song of the Lamb, victory through the Lamb. Friends, whose side are we on? If we're on God's side, be strong and of a good courage, and thou shalt inherit the land. Be strong in the Lord, and in the power of his might. Remember, 
what Paul said at the end of his life. I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day. And not to me only, but also to all them that love is appearing. Will it be like that when we reach the end of our lives? I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, a crown of righteousness. Be strong. Be strong in God. The victory. The victory is yours. Thank you very much indeed, William. It's time for questions if you want to put them. Would you like to say something about the, uh, the believer and uh, who maybe has made lots of mistakes and uh, has not built his life on stones and uh, precious stones and, but has built it on straw? And uh, what do you believe about the believer um, in his life? Will, will God bring them back? Um, in this life, or could they die in, in, in an unrepentant way? Salvation is of grace, and I believe that, you know, we can backslide, we can go far away from God, and yet the Lord will bring us back. He uses his chastisements. Uh, chastisement is painful. It's a horrible thing. God knows how to humble us, and those whom God loves, he says he will chasten. Whom he loveth, he chasteneth. So God doesn't have spoiled children. He corrects us. And if we go far astray, he will bring us back. So if we're truly the people of God, I believe he will bring us back. And if you think of, say, the believer going through life, and we've uh, maybe reached a certain point in our life, and we feel... I've been wasting my life. And I've not been living the sort of life I should live. Let's always remind ourselves there's always the opportunity for a new beginning, a new start, a fresh start. Indeed, we're constantly being called to that in Scripture, called back to God to repent. And yes, we may be 70 or 80 years old and we've wasted our life, but... Let's start using it now the way we should use it. Repent, return, come back to God. Start working for God the way you should. Remember that it's only at the end of the day eternal things that matter. Wealth and prosperity in this world, what is it? Success in the eyes of men, what is it? But if we're doing things for God, if we're standing for God and fighting for his cause, then that's something really worthwhile and really vital. So that's, uh, that's always something for us to remember, that there's always a chance for a new beginning. And uh, it's important for us to keep on reminding ourselves of that. We are now a visual culture. How do we get the word across. In other words, 
how do we communicate in the church and outside the church? I agree with you. We are a, a visual culture and we have to make use of modern media and so on. Uh, and there are many things that are very helpful in that way, there's video and so forth. But at the same time, I also believe firmly in the foolishness of preaching. Preaching was never really such a clever way to convert people and to change their lives and to build up the church. But it was God's way. And it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And uh, even in today's culture, when God's Spirit accompanies the Word, that Word comes with power, challenges people, it convicts them. They cannot run away from it. And no matter how um, visual their culture is, or their ideas are, when God's Spirit drives home the Word, might be only one word, one thought, one idea, but reaches home to the core, and that person will get no rest until they find their rest in God. So I strongly believe still in the foolishness of preaching, which is set before us in Scripture. Preaching by the power of God, that is the means for the salvation of the world. Um, thank you for that stirring and encouraging talk. Um, it was really engaging and helpful. Um, is there anyone um, who you can think of uh, in, in history, kind of Christian believer, who we can find a good biography on, who went through tremendous difficulty and took the things that you said to heart and uh, saw God's, um, uh, you know, came out on the other side being more confident in God than when they started? Yeah, I'm sure there are many. I, I think it's been, it's a relatively common experience in a sense, for all Christians. You know, we have Asaph here, the psalmist. He had experienced that. We think of Psalm 37. It's another similar experience. Um, now, thinking of people from church history, it's difficult to, at this point, uh, you know, to think of who, but many of God's people, even somebody like, say, John Knox, who started off so strongly in St. Andrews and then ended up uh, a galley slave, and, uh, you know, uh, wondering would he ever get out of these galleys, uh, rowing up and down the English Channel for the French. I'm sure he often had these kind of thoughts, and yet God was, through these very experiences, preparing him for the great work of reformation that he was to do in Scotland later on. But maybe others can think of individuals and history that would be good examples of this. It's, uh, I'm sure it's, it's been quite a common experience. Bunyan had his times of doubt and of questioning and no doubt sometimes his times in prison when he wondered, you know, why did God call me to the ministry and stick me in a prison? But then he had to write Pilgrim's Progress and other wonderful books, you know, for our benefit. Something on my mind about a smoking, was it? Bruised read or something, a smoking flask. It's a scripture, I think, and it was a good book. Right. right. Oh, yes. Could you say scripture. a little about that? Yes, the smoking flax he will not quench. And the, yeah, right. Um, sometimes we can be in a very weak situation for one reason or another, sometimes due to the trials of the Lord. Um, 
we find ourselves very vulnerable and like that smoking little wick that's about to go out. The lamp is almost to go out, but the Lord doesn't do that. He doesn't break the bruised reed. So there can be times uh, in our lives when we feel very fragile, and yet um, the Lord upholds us. He keeps us. He sustains us. And um, in a sense, we've got to remember to when I am weak, then am I strong. Uh, the trouble with us sometimes is that we can be very strong and confident in ourselves. And uh, in that situation, we're very vulnerable to the devil's attacks. But if we are weak but looking to the Lord, the Lord will uphold us as the smoking flax and the, the bruised reed. So, yes, and some people by nature are much weaker people than others, much more vulnerable. Some have perhaps maybe a mental condition or whatever that leaves them very weak or they're very doubting Christians. And yet, again, the Lord is very tender in the way he deals with them. And, and that's an encouragement to us. You know, in our weakness, he will strengthen us, he will lift us up, and he will establish us. Mr. McLeod, you referred earlier to the foolishness of preaching. And uh, I note that um, just earlier this afternoon, uh, a bulletin from Colin Hart has drawn our attention to another concern about further oppression on the freedom of speech and freedom of witness to the salvation of, of Christ with the replacement of the ASBOs, the uh, antisocial behaviour uh, orders, uh, with a new law that will refer to nuisance or the capacity for nuisance. Um, should we become, in the light of this new legislation, nuisances for the word of Christ in a secular world? We must continue to preach. Whatever happens, we must preach. We must keep preaching God's word. At the same time, though, we have to be careful. There is the offense of the gospel, and there is offensive gospel preaching. So I think it is possible to be foolishly offensive. Now, I don't think that's something to be commended. We are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Yes, there is a certain offense in the gospel, telling a person they're a sinner, they're on the way to hell, that is offensive to them. And we must not deny that. We must proclaim that gospel, proclaim it boldly and fearlessly. But at the same time, we shouldn't be going out of our way to be a nuisance. I think it looks as if this legislation, if this did become law, it could be very difficult for Christians. In that situation, we must stand firm and steadfast. But what I'm saying is um, we aren't to, to try and be obnoxious, as it were. We shouldn't be going overboard, as it were, and being obnoxious. We must try clearly and sensitively and wisely and fearlessly to preach the gospel to all, call all to repentance, and leave the consequences to God. You mentioned about 100,000 Christians that have been put to death every year. Uh, with that in mind, 
Do you think we're going through the Great Tribulation? I don't think so at this point, no. Um, I think there's a lot of suffering, terrible suffering throughout the world, particularly in Muslim countries, uh, places like Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and Somalia and Sudan and Nigeria and various other countries where there's Iraq and places like that, Afghanistan. There's a lot of persecution, also North Korea. But still, there is considerable freedom for the gospel. And the gospel is being preached throughout the world, in probably in a way in which it hasn't been done previously. Uh, uh, just recently, I was looking at our own church sermons, how they've been up there up on the sermon audio website and looking at the various countries to which they're downloaded and it was fascinating to see for me you know i thought maybe you know 20 30 countries but when i started counting there was over a hundred countries in the world places like um outer mongolia where these sermons were being downloaded saudi arabia and so on and i was thinking well you know, that's something wonderful that the Lord has given us now, that he's given to us the internet to make sermons available throughout the world. So the gospel is spreading throughout the world. We in um, these Western countries, we're seeing the churches declining. But um, in places like China, the, the gospel is prospering immensely and in other parts, in parts of Africa too, and South America. So... It's a time of gospel blessing. I myself, I believe firmly that the Jews are going to be converted to Christ. I believe Romans chapter 11 makes that very plain. And I look forward uh, with expectation to see the conversion of the Jews. I think maybe the way that God has gathered them into their own country um, and given them a measure of success in defending themselves from their neighboring countries is perhaps an indicator that the time is coming near when God is going to convert them. And I believe that the conversion of the Jews will be life from the dead to the Gentile world so that there will be a time of greater prosperity. But then, before the end of the world, Satan will be loosed for a little season and there will be a time of great suffering, I believe. But that time will be shortened for the elect's sake. So uh, that's my own view of things. It's always difficult with history, with uh, prophecy though. Um, and there are many views, different views that people have with regard to prophecy. Uh, J. Alexander, the great commentator, he said that when Christ came the first time, people had all sorts of ideas as to what it would be like when Christ first came. And every one of them virtually was wrong. And it'll be a bit the same when the second coming of Christ comes. We, we all have different ideas, but um, so often make mistakes. And uh, so it's difficult to interpret prophecy. Thank you very much, uh, Reverend McLeod, for the challenge and encouragement as well. Um, does God hand over nations um, to themselves, or is it just individuals? And secondly, is God handing the UK over, if that is the case? Yeah. Nations have to be judged in this world individuals are judged in the next world and we see the judgment of God upon nations it's very clear in the Old Testament my private reading I've been reading through uh, Ezekiel recently and you see judgment there upon 
Egypt and upon uh, Tyre, for example, and uh, told about Tyre, how it would be scraped clean so that there wouldn't be even the, the very dust of Tyre would be scraped away. And uh, it's interesting, I, I've just been reading to um, the mission uh, of um, McChain and Boner to the mission to the Jews when they went looking for a, a site for Jewish evangelism in the mid, uh, well, 1839 it was. And they came to, to Tyre and they looked for the ruins of Tyre and they said there was not a sign left of the ruins of Tyre. I mean, just the rock had been scraped clean. Uh, Alexander the Great had scraped the dust of Tyre to make um, a causeway to the island uh, in order to to conquer the island as well. And so God's judgment was so clearly fulfilled in the destruction of Tyre. So, yes, God judges nations. And he did that in the past. He did it to the Roman Empire. He did it to North Africa, where there was such a turning away um, from God, a compromise with evil. And then the Turks came in, the Muslims, and took over North Africa, and the Christian church disappeared. Um, and yes, I do believe that Britain is under God's judgment today. And um, I think that is obvious in the churches. It's obvious with the theological confusion there is, the lack of clarity in the preaching of the gospel and in the practicing of the gospel. And I think it's obvious in the, in the weakness of the church and um, the way there's so many falling away. However, the fact that our country uh, is under God's judgment, that is no excuse for us to say, um, well, we'll just bury our heads in the sand or we'll run away and hide. No, we have to be faithful, whatever. Whatever the situation, we have to be faithful. We are to do our duty. We're to fight for God's cause, even in a day of darkness, a day of judgment and a day of God's chastisement and wrath. We are to continue to fight and always remembering that God is angry but for a moment. And he's rich in mercy. And he loves to return. And he loves to hear his people's prayers. And to come back and bless his church. And so we must keep on pleading for the Lord to return and bless our nation once again. Can I say thank you on behalf of you all to Mr. McLeod for his very fine talk tonight. And his challenge to us and for the way in which he's answered questions.